hello. Welcome to the third episode. We should get the NPR Indeed. voiceover guy to record like an opening. I kind of like that idea. I mean, it'll. I'm, I'm curious as to whether it'll put our listeners to sleep in the first five seconds. But yeah, very, very look down for that, basically. Yeah, well, what's the, uh, uh, what was that old line from uh, the Don Cheadle movie? Uh, taking the mute out of your commute. Yeah. <laughs> Mike and Steve yeah, no, we, in the morning, we eventually... WKBZRQDQ. We gotta, we we gotta do, as as this sort of takes form. Like in in a couple more episodes, we'll need to figure out our own catchphrases and stuff. I want that soundboard with all the uh, with the effects. Oh, I'd be so down for that. Do you know? I don't know if you remember F- Weenie in the Butt from Family Guy. <laughs> oh yeah, um, yeah. With uh, yeah, we should totally do that. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, Stewie's. Uh, I don't know. Fa- Family Guy's been interesting. I'm. I'm sad though because I don't have a Hulu subscription, so um, I'm. I'm left like stuck at season 18 because of Netflix not willing to update their 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 catalog. Well, Netflix has uh, has Seinfeld now, so I'm happy. Seinfeld, and like we mentioned this last time, but Squid Game. I've been hearing so much stuff about that. Still haven't seen it. Not as good as Seinfeld. What I love really? about Seinfeld is like every single episode would be irrelevant if they had smartphones. Hey, what's that <laughs> store cool. down by whatever that has the thing? And then they spend the whole episode finding out. Whereas if this was filmed now, they'd Google it and uh, it would be just product placement for Apple. And uh, oh, the show right, would be right. over that makes sense. in about 30 seconds. Because, yeah, I remember like growing up, the, the two main shows that we used to watch over lunch were Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Seinfeld, and then like... A bit later on, uh, Frasier, but but yeah, those two I I saw a lot of coming back from middle school and elementary school. And, and slowly you transition into uh, uh, watching that in your underwear at three in the morning uh, in college. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I I I was too late for that, so I was I was in my underwear at three a.m. in the morning watching um, Last Chance You. That's that's a very nice one. Have you have you heard of that one? It's like the, a classic Netflix one. I think so. I mean that that if if Taco Bell and sadness like was a show, <laughs> it would it would be that show. Exactly. Or or IHOP. I've I've had too many experiences at IHOP at two a.m. coming out of the lab with uh, a a Mexican waitress calling me Mijo and just giving me massive massive like you can't even call them mugs. They're like bowls of hot chocolate. Yeah. But those waitresses are the ones that give you like extra hash browns and charge the same, so they're the best. Oh, I love them because we used to do like math. I used to figure out it's like okay, if I want these pancakes and these hash browns, she's like, no, you, you got to get the combo, get it without the eggs. Uh, you'll save like seventy cents. And she's yeah. they're they're awesome. I love them. It's it's one of the the real world cheat codes. It's like if you want double portions at Chipotle, you have to pick two different things and say, oh, just give me a little bit of this and a little bit of the other thing, and then they just do two scoop two scoops. Of uh, uh, by the way, I'm 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 shocked that I still remember my poor people math from ten years ago. But uh, <laughs> if anyone out there can benefit from this, please go for it. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I'm I'm benefiting benefiting a little bit from it. Um, because what what I did at least my my little hack was because of COVID. Um, 
Chipotle got rid of all the hot sauces. So you need to get these like tiny cups of them, which is very, very annoying. So the one I go to over here in Marina del Rey has a Ralph's right next to it. So I just stocked up on um, Cholula, the the jalapeno hot sauce from Tabasco. Yeah. And it's, yeah, I just bring that stuff home and, and soak my, my chips and burritos in it. <laughs> See, this is... Uh... Pre-COVID, the math that you would kind of figure out towards the end of the month before you get money. Um, <laughs> you know, when, when you start like weighing food by the gram, not because, you know, you're working out, but because you're broke. Yeah, and uh, yeah. and then and then when you're really, really screwed and you walk into a Wendy's and you put in your order for just the burger because you can't afford the fries and you got to pay with coins you found in the car on your last five droplets of gas. And... Um, <laughs> It ends with you kind of falling short and standing outside, you know, finding a nice trucker. It's like, uh, hola, uh, yo soy prostituto. <laughs> okay. What's, Ma, doesn't what's listen. A... Ma doesn't listen to this. Oh, it's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. She, she told us to start it, but, but yeah, she, she doesn't she, she listen. Doesn't listen. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but now I was going to say, like, I think I've definitely been in that and we, like, you know, we're being paid founder salaries at the moment. So still kind of going through that right now with, with a small cushion of like Ma, of course, like cooking us yeah. every, every day, every other day. But um, yeah, I think I need to learn Spanish for um, let's see. What what are some int- like good phrases to know in Spanish? Given I think myself. I just gave you the only one that you're going to need as a founder. If I recall correctly, founder income is basically the the uh, company accountant, the outsource guy coming over and sprinkling like bubblegum wrappers and change on you, saying, hope you have fun making it to next week and then leaving. But Pre- Pretty uh, much. Yeah, yeah, that's accurate. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, uh, that's a bad state of affairs, but uh, some people out there were in a worse state of affairs not too long ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's getting into, and and surprisingly, these founders are worth tens and if not hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, but yeah, of course, kind of referring to the Facebook flash crash, basically that I like to call it. So pretty much what happened earlier in the week was um, all of Facebook's products, so Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook.com went kaputs. They went they went dark. Um, Wide scale outage. Um, and a lot of people were very confused as to what happened. Different reports came out. Cloudflare came out with their own blog because um, they have this very um, heavily used DNS resolver that experienced a massive spike in traffic when they went down. But um, Facebook actually came out with a very, very helpful blog basically explaining what went wrong. And um, I was able to dumb it down, not necessarily for the listeners, but more for myself because even you know some of the concepts of the things that went wrong and the graphs that were posted on Twitter were just absolutely weird to kind of wrap your head around. But um, just to get into my little tiny rant here and make transitions along the way. Um, so here's what basically happened. Facebook has global data facilities that are all interconnected by a backbone network. So these facilities can range from either massive computers that run heavy computational loads to keep the platform running, uh, to very small ones that simply connect the network to the broader internet or connect clients opening up their apps to the Facebook servers. And this um, is what so, um, Al Gore built in the 90s, right? Uh, exactly, yeah. Okay. And, uh, that's the whole climate thing he's trying to fix. It's it's all happening because of these. Um, but when when a user opens up their feed or messages, 
um, that client basically connects to a, the nearest data facility to them. So it's usually a smaller one, um, which then uses the backbone network to connect to bigger computationally capable facilities where all the data your app is requesting is fetched. So all these data centers basically communicate by this backbone network, which is managed by routers. Um, so all the traffic going in between these um, centers are routed by those specific routers. And basically, Facebook often takes part of the backbone, backbone network down um, on purpose to either assess or replace uh, certain hardware parts. So if there's like a new usage hotspot that pops up um, or, or if, you know, people need more data scraped for political purposes. Uh, that's that's what usually what they do. They, they kind of like take it down on purpose to make sure that this, the services are well kept. So that's basically where the error happened. So there's a command issued to assess the availability of the entire network, and it slipped through the internal auditing software system due to a bug, and it basically disconnected all those servers from the internet. So each of those data centers were not able to communicate with each other which is kind of a nightmare. You know, if, if I was in their position, not sure how involved the CTO of Facebook is, but um, it, the, the, the whole stereotype of a calm CTO uh, would definitely come down in an event like this. Like this guy would be pulling out what's left of his hair. His hairline would be receding at a pace that is visible to the human eye, basically. Um, so basically, so, so yeah, go, going back to the, 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 the points, uh, that caused a loss of communication between Facebook's internal data centers, but there's an additional config that even caused more issues to arise externally. Um, so the smaller facilities that I kind of mentioned also respond to requests from the internet. So they're called DNS requests. And what they are is basically a directory that translates Facebook's IP addresses to the domain name facebook.com. Um, and that connection is basically advertised to everyone else on the internet through a protocol called Border Gateway Protocol, or BGP. Um, by design, if those servers are unable to connect to Facebook's data centers, those BGP advertisements are taken off. So effectively, they're disconnecting Facebook from the internet. Um, and just to wake up Aziz here and double checking that he's still keeping along, you good? You you, you listening to this stuff? Um. My nerd is rusty. I'm I speak banker nowadays. <laughs> oh right, right. So that's basically, how, how can I translate this? This is uh, yeah. the equivalent of you unplugging the PS5 on me when I had Madden and I was winning in the third quarter. Uh yes, yes. Right. So yeah. so this would be that. This would, it would basically be a mix of that and Excel going down if Excel was hosted on the cloud. Basically, my heart skipped a beat. So. <laughs> So massive, massive problem. And and the fun thing is, you actually notice how this is interconnected because this was monitored by Cloudflare, who ma noticed basically a massive spike in um, server fail responses because they were the ones routing traffic over to Facebook. Um, and on Twitter, Twitter had the most number of users on the app at a single time. Telegram recorded 70 million signups in a single day when Facebook was out. And you know, even looking at the trending part on Twitter, which was uninstall WhatsApp, uninstall Instagram, uninstall all this type of stuff, just simply because they went down. Um, I could not help but like sympathize for those engineers because I feel like they were going through hell at that point. By the way, almost everyone thought that, and by everyone, I mean people who maybe have never written a, a line of code in their life. Everyone thought that this was 
an issue with either their ISP um, or their phone company. Uh, so, oh, yeah. you know, even here, we started getting texts uh, every 30 minutes saying, you know, please do not contact our call centers. Uh, this is not in our hands. Um, but, uh, yeah. you know, the implications of this, you know, so in, in the States where I, I'm sure most people don't even know what WhatsApp is, at least outside the tech community. Um, right. And Instagram is still more so recreational than, than it is commercial, uh, at least for most users. Um, you know, the annoyance is real. Uh, like you said, the Twitter trends kind of make that evident. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I don't think the average American realizes to what degree commerce, you know, business, low-level government functions tend to absolutely rely on things like WhatsApp and then how small businesses uh, need to rely on Instagram. So in, in markets like this one, by the way, like in, in MENA, there's a lot of small businesses, you know, their primary point of contact with their customers is via Instagram and Instagram DMs. And uh, these are people who don't have a website. Um, if you need anything, so, you know, even, even the directions to the store, for example, um, would, would come through Instagram. So when Instagram is down, they lose, it, it's not really losing a service as it is losing access to their entire tech stack. Um, so right. it's a, it's a monumental happening. And then WhatsApp in a lot of, you know, emerging markets, Mina included, um, WhatsApp has a near monopoly on texts and phone calls. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, I remember, when, that, when that goes I down, hearing, yeah. Yeah. When, when that goes down, like it's, it's pretty much Armageddon for a lot of these companies. And I remember, you know, some billion dollar Indian companies actually rely on Facebook for their main point of sales or they're basically like a complementary service to Facebook that makes it easier for business owners to work around with that stuff. Um, so when that underlying infrastructure goes down, that meant, you know, pretty much all hell broke loose um, for a lot of these, you know, for Kuwait, for a lot of the MENA countries, for a lot of the Asian countries, um, simply because of something that wasn't even in their hands. And I think that's kind of what's scary now of with this entire pattern of, um businesses whose core functionality depends on other services that are not in their hands so this kind of goes into you know you know if if i have a business that's based on whatsapp whatsapp goes down i'm screwed if i have um a service that's deployed in aws or gcp or any other cloud provider um if that goes down i'm screwed as well so it's kind of, it's a very interesting dynamic of how fragile most massive businesses are nowadays. I mean, yes, but speaking of fragility, how does this affect, you know, the regulatory perception of Facebook's power over certain telecommunications? I mean, there were definitely some uh, choice tweets from some choice members of Congress, uh, we should say. I mean, we, we don't want to name them, <laughs> you'll see. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's... Uh, you know, I, I mean, this kind of bolsters their position of, of uh, you know, this is clearly a monopoly and should be broken up kind of thing. Um, but uh, again, had this happened, had the U.S.'s involvement or reliance on Facebook for commercial and low-level government purposes been as extensive as it was in some emerging markets, I feel like that conversation would have spun up immediately. Um, because right. this would have meant everything from grocery stores not being able to to you know order uh you know you know order things to restock their shelves 
all the way down to, you know, you can't get your driver's license issued because, you know, employee X and employee Y can't communicate anymore because they have no other way to communicate besides WhatsApp. And that's where all their documents were and they were sending it back and forth. Let's ignore for a second the security implications of that. Um, and I hope I didn't give some like, you know, shady Estonian hacker group some great ideas. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, um, yeah, I mean, two things surprised me. One, there wasn't more hoopla on DC over what had happened. And two, in the emerging markets that had really taken a commercial hit because of this, uh, possibly even like you know a micro GDP hit as well because these servers went down. These services mm -hmm. went down. It's uh, it's been relatively quiet. You know, I, I have not done some in-depth scanning for legislative and regulatory responses, but nowhere has it been, you know, this extreme outrage of how dare you. You know, you, you know, it, it stands to reason that one would expect sort of a. Uh, do you remember when the rumors um, of rape had been circulating in India on WhatsApp and this had unfortunately, you know, kind of uh, some say allegedly that it caused some lynchings in some communities based on false accusations that spread through WhatsApp and that's when WhatsApp introduced the forwarding limits? Right. Yeah. You know, that was there was some some regulatory and, and legislative uproar in India and Bangladesh at that time. But. For some reason, when it was a massive commercial hit and SMBs had to basically close their doors for a day or two, crickets. Maybe they were desensitized because, you know, one day or two days of outage was nothing compared to, say, lockdowns. But I expected more. Same. Yeah. I the, the, the part that I'm very confused about specifically is, so I understand that small businesses like brick and mortar mom and pop shops in the US don't really depend on WhatsApp and Instagram as heavily as other countries, businesses in other countries do. Um, but being a small business, regardless of what country you're in, um, and having the impact to your business as severe as COVID, and then coming out of it still easing into a normal workflow, and then all of a sudden this whole, you know, what you rely on to reach out to your customers and for your customers to find you, um, goes down. I, I was kind of expecting more of an outroar as well, but it seemed like even, you know, for, with all the local businesses that I keep track of, like back home in Kuwait, um, nothing. It was just like, well, that happened. Now we're back. Um, we still serve food or ice cream or whatever it is we serve and we'll carry on. But I do agree with you on the point that if this happened in the US or, or if, if small to medium businesses in the US had as much of a reliance on Instagram and WhatsApp, as countries like back home in Kuwait do, um, it would, it would, in my opinion, as big as Facebook is, would be that final nail in the coffin that would have bipartisan. All right, Facebook is too big. Let's let's do something about it. Yeah. So and then at yeah, that point, might, everyone in the Web three ecosystem starts cheering loudly, like it's you know the end of one of the Star Wars sequel movies. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because because one thing's like. And this is just the completely theoretical, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, doesn't happen. But there, I think there are two to five public companies um, who completely 100% run on Shopify. So, you know, if if a dark day comes where Shopify goes down, imagine what that's going to do to those the, the the stock of those five, like four to five companies. They're gonna they're gonna get screwed. Well, that leads to a separate discussion of whether Shopify can, you know, truly maintain its competitive advantage, at least with the super giants, by you know ensuring that they're going to remain reliant on third-party tech to keep their sites up. It sounds like sooner or later they're going to start building it internally, but that's a separate discussion. Right. 
Um, True. So, okay. So, what what does this mean for the Web three discussion? You know, what what so, have we heard among amongst the uh, the maximalists? Yeah. So, so you know, maxis don't really have articles and blog posts and stuff like that. Most of the genuine information you find on Twitter. So, um, maxis just yell. some. Yeah, yeah. They they curse at Elon and just keep saying we're not selling. Um, right. I mean, laser eyes. Never, never forget the laser eyes. Um, Doge forever. So, Doge, Doge forever indeed. Um, which again, this disclosure, everything on this podcast was paid for by Dogecoin. Um, to clarify, so, that means our investment returns from Dogecoin. We have nothing to do with the Dogecoin Foundation. But going on. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Um, but yeah. So, so what does this mean basically for Web three? And so. As 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 sort of like a context or a warning, it's it's very difficult not to get too technical. I might get a little technical, but I'll need to just for this this whole thing to make sense. But so one thing that people need to understand is basically what a Web three product kind of consists of, um, because the minute people think Web three, they think okay, that's completely decentralized. It's blockchain, hard to take down, hard to hack. Um, the problem of wide-scale outages is solved. Everyone claps. End of the day, but that's not really the case. So, taking a look in like an NFT marketplace, for example, um, sure it's connected to a blockchain and it's purely run on a blockchain, but because it's a website where you have, you know, first of all, a pretty interface, uh, uh, places for you to interact with other users, the fact that you have an account of your own, all this stuff is stored on a traditional, normal, quote unquote, web two database and stack. You still have a server that's gonna serve responses. You still have a database that's gonna, you know, store a lot of this stuff. The main differentiator is that function of the database because in web two, everything stops at the database. Like it's the last, it's it's the ledger basically. Um, in web three, all it does is it saves the state of the blockchain. So. What this technically means is that if if I have a Web three startup um, with a normal server, a normal a normal database, and I have a blockchain where um, tokens are exchanged between wallets or something like that, um, if my server and database is hosted on AWS and AWS goes down, I'll go down with it, even if the blockchain is still up and healthy. So, services that are purely run on the blockchain make me curious because if that is ever achieved. Do you think that'll be the complete solution to outages just generally? I, I don't think it will be the absolute solution to outages because I don't think we will ever truly divorce ourselves from Web2. I mean, still, there there are going to be some legacy systems running here and there. And so long as you have a dependency somewhere, you're only as strong as your weakest link, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think the the funny thing was that there was a there's a comic that actually paints a nice web two version of it of of um it's it's basically called abstraction hell of you know any any product that I build is run on dependencies that is run on dependencies that is run on dependencies and it just it gets worse the lo the lower you go yeah um and there was this nice little um, XKCD comic that basically had pretty much like uh, an entire Jenga building of uh, the entire internet's infrastructure, and then just one tiny piece holding it, which is uh, labeled, you know, that one open source project maintained by someone in Nebraska thanklessly since 2005. Um, it's it's kind <laughs> of is, it's kind of scary when you think of it. 
This is one of those metaphors where that scene from Big Short comes in mind. When oh uh, yeah, <laughs> what's his name? Jared Vennett is uh, uh-huh. you know, he, he like you know puts up this Jenga tower uh, in front of Mark Baum and says, uh, uh, you know, once upon a time all these things were made of uh, grade A debt, and then they started introducing shitty stuff, and then. Uh, you know, they called it diversified, and then that made it more desirable. And then sooner or later, the good stuff became shitty stuff, and the shitty stuff became even shittier stuff. And then one thing falls, and before you know it, the whole market falls. And I think the anal- the, the analogy here is, uh, you know, you have some really old deprecated shit that's being kept up by, like you said, one nerd in a basement in Nebraska, mm-hmm. and uh, all kinds of things being built on top of it. And uh, I don't I don't know whether I can say one day the day will come that. Uh, uh, you know, the, the nerd in Nebraska chokes on a Dorito and then forgets to update his <laughs> GitHub or, or right. you know, or can't. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, you know, the dependency doesn't update and then somewhere along the line it breaks and it breaks everything above it and the whole thing comes crashing down. Um, well, for one thing, there's a lot less dependencies in any piece of software, commercial software, than there is uh, than there are mortgages in any one MBS. Um, mm-hmm. But... Uh, um, I mean, it happens on smaller scales on smaller projects, right? I, I can definitely remember yeah, doing stuff yeah, in class. Yeah, it definitely happens. And oh, uh, yeah. something breaks. Remember the Python 2, Python 3 switch, you know, use the wrong dependency and like, whoops, you have an F. Yeah. I'll, see David Mal- I'll, I'll see David Malin again next semester. Um, <laughs> uh, if yeah. you don't know, that's think- the legendary professor of uh, CS50 in Harvard. And nobody has made me f- ever, ever feel as stupid as he did. Uh, when I left that class, because I, I just felt like I walked into there with such confidence, like, oh, yeah, I've written code before, I can do this shit, and I left like I don't, I don't want to use computers anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I actually have a funny because the the t- summer twenty fifteen, I did a computer science course at Harvard, and um, professor was David Sullivan, and it it was so it was kind of like that, like I walked in there going like. I've I've designed an HTML page before. That's that's fine. I can I can probably do Java, whatever this thing is. And um, he he gave me like one of my first major slaps in the face of like you're you have the programming knowledge of a monkey that gets rewarded with banana smoothie. Basically, um, it, yeah. it's it's it was it was pretty much one of those mo- moments where I was like, oh shit, I've been I've been talking about comsite, but is this is this actually it? And what that resulted in is like a panic dive into a rabbit hole that eventually took me past comp site to electrical engineering. But that's a whole other thing that has caused um, uncalculable amounts of stress. But <laughs> yeah, but good stress. Yay. Anyways, very good stress because now I have a piece of paper that I still don't use because I'm doing software engineering. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, speaking of pieces of paper, there's a lot of people who, who you know, after going through a CS degree, um, we're kind of shocked that they were working next to people who did like a six week boot camp, and they're kind of getting paid mm-hmm. the same. And I still remember a discussion with a friend who had actually gotten a CS degree from a respectable university thinking I'm really double thinking the value of my career choices or education choices right now. Because if this dude just walked into a boot camp and then walked into the same job I have, what the fuck was I doing for the last four years? Exactly. Um, and, and why did I pay $120,000? Um, <laughs> But uh, I think, right. I, and, you know, I think more so that's you're, you're seeing more and more of that in all kinds of different lines of work, my own included, by the way. Right. Yeah. I was just about to mention, because now I'm noticing, you know, VC is kind of going through that same, th- that same transition. And I'm very curious to hear it from, you know, you being a VC's perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I had made 
the early mistake of at least okay let's delve into my history a little bit so in college i had a startup and that startup was a complete and total disaster however it gave me the startup bug and i started to become very very interested in technology and new ventures and the vc world and all of that um i was an econ undergrad uh so i didn't really write any code as a part of class i just kind of dabbled with it on my on, on my own with youtube videos and whatnot um but you know my ultimate goal even after i had set up that business and honestly thought that it would work out was I'm, I'm doing this so that I can be a VC because I was always super enamored by the people who were sitting on the other side of the table of me when I was pitching them. Um, I just, I just wanted to get to that side of the table. So my, my impression back then of how you get to that side of the table is one, you know, you're a founder and you have a rock star exit and you get to be a VC, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Two is, uh, at least from like the associate and analyst pool that I had spoken to every now and then, is you're part of <clears throat> like what you call the TMT pool at any investment bank. So TMT is tech, media, telecom. Um, oh, interesting. If, if you work those deals for a couple of years, what usually ends up happening is they end up getting poached by a VC to be an associate if they spend a couple of years as an analyst, that kind of thing. Um, option three is, you know, you uh, uh, your dad's a senator. Um, or, you know, you have some kind of uh, social leverage. Um, so I thought option one would be the way I would get back in. Um, again, my startup went belly up and uh, nobody really cares about who lost the Super Bowl. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, so after it went belly up, I figured, oh, okay, how do I, uh, how do I you know, get back to the other side of the, of the business? I mean, other side of the table. And we figured, um, okay, you know, dad's not a senator. But uh, I can do the investment banking thing. I'll just go work for an investment bank. Um, so I applied to like 4 million investment banks and not one of them would take me because, you know, non-target school, you know, you're kind of supposed to do this directly out of school and don't just kind of waltz into it kind of thing. So I figured the bulge brackets, the big boys, Goldman, JP, that was not, not happening. Um, right. And uh, I, uh, um, well, I mean, I, I interned for an investment bank for a while uh, and then I did my master's in finance. Uh, and then I got into investment banking from there, but I got into investment banking in a place where I thought there would be absolutely no exit to an investment bank. Um, I was doing it in Kuwait, uh, which is, you know, not exactly Sand Hill road, mm -hmm. more like Sandy road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. But, actually uh, saying there's a road in Kuwait is a bit of a stretch, but yeah, it was a uh, sand pile road, but, uh, sand pile road. Yeah. 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 And, uh, the funny thing is like I had to. The whole place was like under construction the whole time I worked there and I had to like drive over a lot of sand and the car got stuck a couple times. And anyways, um, yeah, so I figured, okay, that's, that's how I get into VC. But, uh, you know, I ended up, uh, um, I ended up working for uh, a group that was set up by, uh, someone who had recently exited an F and B deal, which at that time was, I believe the largest exit in the Middle East and North Africa region when it happened. Um, and uh, I built a seed stage portfolio there for a couple of years. And uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, that, that, that was my in, like, kind of investor career path. And again, I did it in a country where like nobody goes into VC because I'm pretty sure the VC I worked for was like the first or second VC and one of the last two in, in this particular country. Um, like we, we, we don't now, exactly... Say, what? So the question from my end would be like, would you say that a majority of current VCs have taken your path or, or would you call yours sort of an exception? 
Well, that's the thing. If you had asked me this question like six years ago, I would have told you, nah, you were in a startup and you got out, you're an early, you know, early uh, uh, employee in one, um, or you got poached from the investment banks, or you're like, you know, some like research analyst who's focused on tech stocks or that kind of thing. Like it was a very hardcore group of finance people who ended up in VC. And that was, it was overweight finance types of people, right? These were people mm. who were happy to finally throw away their tie and start wearing vans to work. Um, right, right. But it, what, what's happened in the last few years is really eye-opening because that has all gone directly into the toilet. First of all, a lot of people who had nothing to do with the financial type decisions within the startup infrastructure and and or the startup, uh, you know, H, um, uh, org chart, uh, were suddenly making it into investment decisions, inf investment um, decision making uh, jobs. Like you know, a lot of PMs ended up there. I saw uh, two people who used to be in HR because, I mean, we all know how useful you are as an investor if you have a way of finding talent. Um, mm -hmm. I noticed, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people who are on the technology side ended up going in. You know, some of those people like to specialize in like the DevOps, DevTools, um, sorry, not DevOps, DevTools um, uh, sector. Um, so yeah, different kind of people from within startups were moving towards the investment side. And then now you just have like content creators who are VCs. Um, you have, uh, you have people who come from the, you know, general vertical where the VC wants to focus. I mean, for example, like, you know, Ali Corp, you know, they're giving a hundred million dollars to invest, uh, in healthcare and they're, they're giving it to physicians, including people who are active tending physicians at places like Sloan Kettering. Um, so like, you know, respected, uh, people in the healthcare space and not, you know, some person they've fished out of a two week medical school in Panama, but, uh, you know, they have other working doctors who are actually making investment decisions. There are some like stellar medical students who are going to be making investment decisions for them. Um, this is no longer seen as this kind of bizarro sideshow and weird way to waltz into VC. It's, uh, you really flexing your muscle, showing people what you know and your talent and selecting good companies because you have the criteria. Um, you know what questions to ask when when it, when it comes time to you know analyze and evaluate investment opportunity. Um, so yeah, people think, now, now go ahead. Or, or not 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 to cut in real quick, but I think that that's another thing that I've noticed as well. Where um, employees at a lot of big tech companies is, are, are are very, you know, finding angel investors among them has basically been a dime a dozen mm -hmm. because. You, you already have the massive pay that you can kind of take a bit of and start investing in startups. But the 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 one sort of question that I have, um, not to sort of interrupt your flow, is what sort of resources exist for someone who's gone from college to extremely high-paying fang job mm -hmm. to tell whether something is a good startup or not? Well, people, I mean... When they start out, and even later on, when they have established funds, they like to invest in things that they know. So, for example, like you know, these doctors are investing in in the healthcare space. Um, content creators are investing in content creation tools, among other things. Mm -hmm. But content creation tools. Um, the thing is, these investors are seen doing something that is sort of an extension of their existing line of work and expertise. Um, they don't kind of perceive it as this whole other job on the side. I mean, angel investors almost exclusively are people who do other shit as well. They don't only angel invest. Um, and their expertise just comes from the years of exposure. And I don't think there are that many angel investors out there who are like, yeah, sure, I'll invest in anything cool, right? Like there are very few true generalists. And that's not because of financial reasons. It's not because they don't have enough money to write enough checks to enough sectors. It's, it's because 
they will invest in what they're comfortable in. And it's, I mean, you know this, it's very normal to get a no thank you from an investor on the on the account of, I don't know what this is. You know, for me, like some, every now and again, I get pitched something in biotech and I have no clue what I'm reading. It just sounds really cool, but I can't, I can't call the shots and, and, and decide to invest. But now you're seeing, you know, even later stage startup founders, like kind of series B plus, uh, a lot of them are starting to raise rolling funds on AngelList. Or, I mean, raising traditional funds or just a small, you know, LP pool. Um, you know, the cost to raise has come down significantly. Um, there are tools now that allow you to like kind of publicly market uh, your fund and and be able to do it on Twitter. If you happen to have a good Twitter following, people just click a link and invest. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's made the cost of of uh, breaking into VC so much lower. And what is actually you know, despite this, the massive sizes of uh, checks being written now, and how big rounds have gotten, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, investors will take. Uh, sorry, a lot of founders will take small checks from investors because <clears throat> they feel the value out of having that person in their network um, absolutely justifies you know the additional headache of uh, you know one more set of paperwork for not that much money compared to what other checks are going to be. Uh, the smallest I mean I've ever invested was five hundred dollars. Really. $500. It was a tiny, tiny round. They were raising $25,000 and they were doing it from people who they felt could be some help later on. This was a pre-seed round. You know, if they if if uh, they survive to seed and they do well, I think I'll write a much bigger check. But $500. And and that what did that $500 do? I mean, that's the cost of one particularly expensive fancy lunch with maybe a couple friends. And yeah. uh, you know, that 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 buys you some clout, some uh, some access. Because uh, you know that five hundred dollars right. can secure you a big allocation later, just for for exactly. having been there early and and having been willing to put in the work. Um, and as far and, as and putting in the, the work, yeah, right. And, and I think the, the the benefit of that specifically is um, looking at it from the founder's perspective. You know, the number one thing that you need to, that you need to do, at least that I'm noticing that we need to do, is um, you got to expand that network. Like that network needs to be massive. Yep, because. Part of a modern startup founder's role is personal image building, somewhat content creation, mm -hmm. um, because you need to use that clout or credibility um, to not only like spring you on to another startup post exit or 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 if this the, like you know if your current one goes belly belly up, but it's no matter how big of a check you take from other founders. Um, expanding your network of founders and therefore your network of VCs and everyone else who comes with them um, is, is just so valuable, even if it's worth a $500 check. Well, that's, that's, you know, that's the operative metric, right? I mean, look, there's, there's a lot of money out there. You can get a lot of smart money and a lot of dumb money, but you know, mm -hmm. my dollar bill is no different from Mark Andreessen's dollar bill. Difference is who does he know and who do I know? Right. That's very true. So you're not supposed to agree with that wholeheartedly, but thank you. Um, but, uh, <laughs> the future of, uh, Ma. okay, you're in trouble. <laughs> um, the future of VC, honestly, it's, it's either you're a, you're a massive, you're a massive VC with like, you know, super built out services, um, and, and, and like, you know, investor networks and, and all these connections that you can bring to the table for, for your founder, kind of like, you know, Andreessen Horowitz is becoming, um, yeah, you know, right. there once was a time where a, a massive VC firm with like billions under management was like 20 people, you know, hmm. um, folks like A16Z are kind of breaking the mold because yes, they understand, uh, how crucial content is and how crucial, like, you know, specialized funds are and then all the different things they can possibly do, 
um, for a founder that sets them apart and make sure people take their money as opposed to other GPs money. Because again, a dollar bill is a dollar bill. And that's not how I'm making my decisions at the very early stage as a founder when I select my investors and I start allocating capital in a, overheat, in a heated round, right? So that's right. one kind of VC, but that's not everyone. I mean, we're seeing the extremes. We're seeing people explode into massive financial services businesses. And then we're seeing people who are basically Twitter nerds with a rolling fund. And, uh, you know, so the uh, network that I'm bringing is my own personal network. And we could be of great help to you between pre-seed and seed. Maybe I'm not much help to you after series A, series B, but that's fine. You know, that's what another investor can come in. Maybe I can help make a few connections there, make a few introductions. So. And and, yeah, and this really has revolved around the content creator culture, you know, because the way I'm relevant as a tiny investor, as a tiny VC, as a person with a single member LLC, and I'm just going around, you know, doing maybe two deals a month. The way I'm relevant is by being a micro influencer to a few thousand people on a public channel like Twitter. Yeah, exactly. And I, and, I, and I think the thing is, like, even from a founder's perspective, again, um, you know, GovTech is no stranger to VCs basically telling us, I honestly don't understand whether it's the market, the business, the industry. So looking at it from the side of, okay, I need to build my image in order to have other founders on my cap table who need to be um, well-connected themselves. Uh, that's basically that, that, is proof that it does not exclude GovTech founders from the fact that we need to start building our images, whether it's um, posting weird stuff on Twitter, um, your mother forcing you to make a podcast with your older VC sibling, or whatever it may be, really. Or us blaming our poor decision to start a podcast on our mother. Um, yeah, and using Dogecoin to pay for it. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, what's that? Sorry, but. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Uh, the lawyers uh, just uh, off camera are, are, are making me say that Dogecoin has nothing to do with this. They haven't financed us. Uh, we are simply paying for this podcast through our personal earnings from trading Dogecoin. We have no affiliation with Dogecoin Foundation or Shiba Toshi Nakamoto. Thank you. Um, right. So where was I? Right. Yeah. So all this, you know, all, all these big changes in, in the VC space, like the question is, is this super justified or is this uh, podcast going to be used as one of those... Uh, uh, you know, like those post-mortem post -mortem, uh, audio clips of uh, see how crazy people were before the correction, dun-dun-dun, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it seems easy to write it off as like, hey, this is a disaster waiting to happen, money's flooding the system. But I think, you know, there are a couple of motions here and there in the macro economy that kind of justify to a degree what we're seeing right now. I mean, without a doubt, there's a little bit of mania. I'm going to say that right off the bat. But there, there is some justification to say like, yo, this is not 2001. This is not 2008 housing. Chill out. We have some numbers to support this. You know, I mean, first of all, your TAM, you know, your addressable market has increased for almost every single vertical as a result of like massive behavioral changes in the market. I would be very worried if those behavioral changes started to reverse now that COVID has calmed down and we've had vaccines for about a, almost what, a year now. Um, yeah. You know, things like, you know, SaaS is definitely going to become more necessary as teams become more distributed. Um, your, your tech stack as a business is definitely going to grow. Um, E-commerce growth is not reversing itself. You know, uh, Amazon's market cap has not crashed now that total cases have declined. Um, mm -hmm. 
professional service marketplaces, I mean, you're, you're allowing independent contractors to start earning income similar to what they would be making in major firms in major cities. Uh, you know, you could be a you can be a, a you know a CPA in Sandusky, Ohio, and literally get enough deal flow to make as much as somebody working at a big four firm in DC. So, right. and and that I know from experience, you know, um, from from an actual friend. Like that's these things did not happen a very short period ago, right? Um, like mm -hmm. you know, U.S. based investors also with like all the money that's available now in the ecosystem, they're expanding their horizons. So like San Francisco used to get like all the cash because everyone looked there and said that's where all the exits are. That's where we're going to put our money, right? But we have a viable parallel market growing in New York City, and that's starting to get a ton more deal flow. And a lot more money is trying is starting to go there, especially in the early stages. You know, Miami, Boston, Austin, LA—they're all like viable startup ecosystems. You know, right now we kind of look at look at it as San Francisco versus non-San Francisco U.S. Or I call them emerging American markets. Um, mm. I think the time will come where we will start seeing just as much deal flow and VC activity in non-San Francisco uh, locales as we see in the Bay Area. And I know there are a lot of people who are absolutely going to roll their eyes at the thought of that. Like, ah, this is noob. You know, he doesn't know shit about the Bay Area. He's, and honestly, I think, you know, think of the sheer number of industries that the United States has lost, not to other cities within the U.S., but to other countries. And that was inconceivable uh, back when the U.S. was at, like, you know, peak steel production, for example, you know? And yeah, uh, that happened. And I think that Where are you all now? Exactly. And I, and I think that the, the weird thing with that is, you, you know, not only are specific sectors or verticals being taken away or dominated by other countries, but we're noticing very interesting, like almost golden ages that are happening where in a single year, 2021, you can have the most number of startups turned unicorn as the previous 10 years combined or something like that. I think the biggest example of that is basically being India. You know, the the Indian presence in the startup scene globally has definitely increased this year. Um, not sure if it was fueled by COVID, but it might have helped for the ones that are purely online. Yeah. Um, but even more importantly, not only have they caught up to the US in some industries in terms of innovation, but the founders are even having more of a pre presence on Twitter. They're having more of a, a pull, more of an attraction for both followers and VC money. Yep. So a lot of, not only is some of the stuff going away, but it's not like people are taking a part of, taking a part of what the US has in terms of the startup scene and saying, all right, what can we do with this? They're basically taking it and plugging it into, Lord knows, like a, a grind or or a yep. an existing system that- Look is with already respect, on the scale of the US. Right. Like with respect to the industry, nobody has stolen America's pie from the windowsill, right? It's still there. Right. And it's still mm -hmm. growing. People are starting to bake their own. Um, yeah. Yeah. People I think are starting the to only bake argument own. for, oh, they're starting to steal pie from our windowsill is when it comes to talent, where competition is now stealing it from the States. Because it used to be a given that a, you know, a good software engineer in India would just go to the States. But now they that's it's not a given anymore. They have absolutely plenty of incentive to stay in India um, or to move within India uh, or to Bangalore uh, and make as, you know, in relative terms, uh, get as much of a quality of living as they would have gotten had they moved to San Francisco. Right. Yeah. They, they, yeah. They get the same quality of living, maybe not the highest salaries, but um, what's, what's happening is the, the nice pattern with that specifically um, is the U S 
so that's one of the things where you know a lot of other countries can take a part of the could take or bake their own piece of the pie or their own pies and grow it on the pace that the US has been growing it but when it comes to talent it's one of the few sectors or topics where the, the US is actually going after that talent um so sure a lot of indian chinese um whatever it may be software engineers are not willing to come to the US because they have better opportunities back home but the interesting thing that's happening is that people in the US are setting up either nearshoring companies or or employees yep. of record or something like that where they can allow US startups to build hubs of engineers in these other countries yep. where you might not need to pay the salary of a senior engineer in the US um and so this, the, by the way is another way that the US ecosystem is kind of shooting itself in the face like if I were a politician listening to this like oh you know the core of talent that has built this industry in America is being kicked out because of stupid antiquated rules and by the way, we should throw mm -hmm. in, you're, you're recording this in LA right now. I'm recording this in Kuwait City. I've been here the last year and a half waiting for paperwork. <laughs> you right. know, I, yeah. I've, been, I've been working remote uh, the entire time. Um, and it's, it's all because of paperwork. Now, you know, this shitty situation existed long before COVID. COVID just made it kind of 20 times worse with all the, the lockdowns and, and everything being put on hold and all of that. But, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know... Capital has found itself being much more uh, welcome in the U.S. than than labor. Um, it's very easy to raise a fund from outside the U.S. Uh, if you're raising in the U.S., um, you know, the, legally, culturally, it's just very accepted. But you know, it used to be far easier to get good international talent in like this uh, in the spirit of like Operation Paperclip to move to the U.S. Um, right. and and build the country and to do it not because they're forced to, but because the the sheer economic incentive is unrivaled compared to really anywhere else and that was true universally no matter where you came from if you're in the soviet union if you're in india if you're in china if you're in africa if you're in europe i mean the opportunity to do what you did and to earn the rewards that you would earn in the united states were absolutely unrivaled and right now the us is quickly losing that monopoly and uh right. the, the laws on the books have made it exceptionally difficult for people to hire in the us um, there's virtually no unemployment in the software engineering space because it's been so hard to get them into the country for the last year and a half. And like you right. said, like people on the West Coast are setting up offices in South America. People on the East Coast, are, they've been setting, enough, uh, setting up offices in Europe. And sometimes in places where, by the way, it's not much cheaper than the States. I mean, if you're employing people in the UK, they ain't working for free. And, and right. uh, you know, it's just a mismatch in, in the market. Yeah, I, I think it's just more of a, so right now, what I'm noticing it's it's trans transitioning to isn't if you hire these people, you'll get a good deal, but is it's it's basically turning into the question of um, where can I go where the idea of my startup or the idea of the fact that I'm going to start paying with US dollars is more convincing um, because what's happening now because of all this like globalization of talent is um, if I'm in the US and I'm trying to hire a senior engineer, it's slowly turning into if i go through a dev shop or if i go through an employer of record or anything like that it's still somewhat the same price you're not going to be saving a ton of money but it's just if i if a, a us-based startup goes to say turkey or or lebanon where their economies are shitting the bed their currency is horrible and 
I think we we've touched on this briefly in another another episode, but you know, if you have savings, you the 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 purchasing power of those savings are quickly almost day by day weakening. Um, and you're approached by a U.S. startup that says we'll pay you in U.S. dollars, which, as much as the crypto cur- like community is shitting on right now, is still a fairly strong currency. Yeah. Um, it just saying that I'll pay you in U.S. dollars to an engineer in Ohio or Nebraska he'd laugh in your face he or she would laugh in your face but um doing that internationally mm-hmm. it, it still has some sort of pull yeah yeah but i mean that's that's the labor side of the argument going back to the capital bit i mean american capital has been definitively kicked out of china basically right i mean not in express terms mm-hmm. but you know writings on the wall um right that is is moving to fuel massive uh increases in startup activity in latin america um even you know places that were already pretty developed like you know london for example um what's super interesting is the massive uptake of of activity not just in india but in pakistan and southeast asia um in australia uh in africa sub-saharan africa in middle east north africa the thing is one thing a lot of the places where these massive booms have occurred have in common is they have plentiful um technical talent Right. I mean, this is this is where people in the developed countries would go to hire, and now this is where financiers in developed countries are going to invest um, because they believe exactly. a lot of the alpha remains in being able to still invest in kind of low pre-money valuation startups in the seed and pre-seed spaces in those areas, and they're being created and run by the people who are going to be hired by Western startups, anyways. So this is. Uh, you know, one of the unintended consequences, I guess, of, of COVID response has been a great equalizer in terms of opportunity and incentive. Um, yeah, but g- going going back to the fact that we're recording this on different sides of the planet, right. um, it still goes to say that the U.S. is really shooting itself in the foot with with these horrible, the, these antiquated, extremely slow laws. Honestly, ask Harry Hurst. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But and, he's he's, uh, he's stuck in the UK over uh, O one visa processing. I mean, uh, I'm not giving anything away. By the way, he uh, this was in the news and he tweeted it and everything. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, so Pipe set up a UK operation recently, and you know, Harry did not specifically you know say this publicly or even to me. Not that we're on speaking terms or anything. But he, uh, um, you know, I have to ask myself, would that have happened? if it were possible for him to quickly get his visa stamped at the embassy and go right back to Miami. Right. America's loss is London's gain in, in this instance. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, but again, I want, I want to, I want to go back to the capital bit. Like, you know, people saying things are way too heated. Um, Mm -hmm. look, the market has grown. Things are heated. Yes. Um, and as I say this, David Yulovich of A16Z is, is tweeting about how a lot of the heat uh, that we see in Series A super popular rounds is kind of fictitious and made up and, and manufactured for, I'm guessing, marketing purposes. But uh, yeah. look, if, if, if I'm allowed to be an econ nerd for a second, the US money supply has increased 30% over the last 18 months. Every commodity in the market is just seeing vast increases in valuations. Everything from like oranges for orange juice being sold in orchards in Florida uh, to lumber for for building initiatives, you know, in the, in the Northeast, um, everything, every commodity has soared in value. Almost nothing is at where it was just a few years ago, unless it's gold. Narrative violation, but everything else has basically soared. Um, so it, it would be naive to say that the tech sector is somehow immune from all of this activity because no, it's not. 
Um, right. And before every crisis, there's always people who are going to rush to explain, oh, this is not like all the others. This one's different. Look at the data. And then after the crisis, everyone you know has 2020 vision and hindsight. And we're like, oh, it was so obviously a problem. And we it was just waiting for the right time to finally boil over. And I, look, things are heated. I will definitely say that. Things are have gotten a little crazy. But the market has just blown up as a result of what happened during COVID. Exits are now so much higher. Public trading comps are so much higher. The number of decacorns and unicorns uh, has just increased massively, and it is you know kind of commensurate with an increase in, in revenues and other you know financial non-vanity metrics. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's eye-opening, but I don't see it as a reason to sit this one out and oh, let's just wait for a correction. Because in my experience, anyone doing that in any market has, you know, we're not really good at timing things as people or investors. True. Yeah, I, th- I think if if we were good at timing, good at telling the future, no matter how many analyses you do, you read or you check out, it's always going to be, you know, there's a reason these cycles exist is because a, a, a critical amount of people just don't see this stuff coming yeah um yeah it, it's 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 interesting but part of me just says you know you you, you got to lead into it and just plan accordingly honestly yeah i mean look so many people from so many backgrounds can now enter the space well, i mean look if you're afraid of inflation the best thing to own during inflation is equity and good businesses Right. And that's not my opinion. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of data for this. But, uh, you know, it's just the door is open. Uh, you know, the old, uh, the old guard who used to keep people out 10 years ago, you know, as recently as 10 years ago, they're gone. They don't care if you didn't go to Stanford. You know, I mean, like right. when I was, I can say that I was one of the first like generation of VCs setting up in the MENA region because 10 years ago, there was no VC in the MENA region, period. Okay. Um, so in, in the MENA in the MENA region, it was surprising how few of the VC partners and their staff had prior startup experience. And if they did have prior startup experience, none of them were the kind of people who were like, oh, we've been in this basically since we got out of college. Um, you just didn't have those people. That ecosystem was just too new. So I mean, the the, the region is it's just not old enough to have that sort of a resume while being entirely in the region. I mean, there's a couple of notable exceptions here and there, but generally speaking. Um, I should say that the you know the, the folks that I worked for were known for having what you know what was up until that point the largest exit in the tech ecosystem. I think by 2015, um, there have been exits that have you know kind of matched and eclipsed that since. But uh, um, to to give you a sense of like you know the the, the generational um, progression, so the saga of food delivery startups in the Middle East North Africa regions created that one notable VC and. Also, I mean, two of the best performing startups in my MENA portfolio, um, which are the deals I had done for that VC. Um, and uh, ever since, like, you know, the exit of uh, Karim and, uh, you know, Inst- uh, what is it, Instashop um, and a number of other, you know, kind of UAE exits, uh, it- it's created legions of, uh, you know, new check writers. Um, and even families, family funds who had, you know, in the past really had nothing to do with this assets, asset class whatsoever are becoming more and more open to writing checks. And one thing that actually works to our favor in this region is we don't have the equivalent of accredited investor laws. If you got money, you can write a check, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's open to all in that sense. 
And, um, you know, if anyone's listening to this and, and they're having some thoughts of maybe like gaining some exposure to the asset class, I'm not an investment advisor, but generally speaking across all assets, what tends to, or I'll say this asset specifically being indexed, taking an indexed approach, um, making sure you're in as many deals, um, that, you know, adhere to your investment philosophy. Um, it, you know, if you make equal bets across the board, the way it works is the power law will take effect and your returns um, are going to be attributed mainly to one or two deals you did at any given time frame. Uh, you know, the top 10% is going to generate 90% of your returns. That's how this business works. But if you have the cash, I see no reason to not whet your appetite. Again, I'm not a registered investment advisor. Check this with your CPA and blah, 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 all the disclaimers. But that's... Um, there's plenty of research out there, and um, I think, you know, it's good that the old guard is gone. There's a new generation right now, and in, in, in this region and every region, developed and developing markets, it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think our our, our, our non-existent lawyers are working really hard to uh, shut out the slavers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, that was. Uh, it's nice to end on a positive note, yeah. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. Very. It's like very that nice Reagan, so. uh, that Reagan ad. It's morning in America. Everyone feels good. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Gotta gotta start uh, Sunday mornings, or I guess your Sunday night. Yeah. End your Sunday pro- appropriately. True that. True that. Yeah. All right. So yeah. before we finally sign off, I just want to say I saw this thing on TikTok, and everyone should look it up. Look up chicken fried egg. It sounds gross, but check it out. Chicken fried egg. Yeah, this is going to be your new thing. I, I got a feeling. Chicken fried egg. Yeah. So you fry an egg like a chicken? Like a fried chicken? Yes and no. Deceptive wow. name, but look it up. Anyhow, that's uh, that's all I got for the week. I That, that sounds like a very productive week. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm just very, very excited because my, my Mac... So, so the 2018 MacBook Pro that I work on, uh, which is the one I'm using right now, actually, had the butterfly switch issues, yeah. um, like the sticky keyboard where you click an A and two A's pop up and whatever. Mm-hmm. So I um, I sent it in to get fixed, and it took basically all of this week. So I got it two days ago on Friday. And the backlog of merge requests and releases and versions and everything has been, uh, has, has, has been fun to say the least, uh, to, to, to work with. So that's, that's what the rest of my day look like, looks like at least. Awesome. Have fun redestroying your, uh, keyboard with a chicken fried egg. All right. <laughs> Until next week. Until next week and the next, you know, game groundbreaking thing that pops up that we'll rant about, but yeah. Yep. Till the next rant. Bye-bye. Indeed.
Thank you.